Well, that was great to hear how the conference affected or at least had impact upon us. That kind of feeds right into what we're going to talk about tonight. So I thought that was great to prime the pump in that way. So I'll ask you to just take your Bibles and turn with them or turn in them with me to Galatians chapter 5. It's a very important chapter, not that any chapter in the scriptures is unimportant, but this is an important chapter for our personal life, our life as Christians, because every Christian here in this chapter is given practical wisdom about living out what matters most, which really kind of piggybacks on our weekend at large with Dr. Doran. So I want to begin tonight just with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Father, we thank you for all that you have challenged us with this weekend as we have been exposed to your word, as we have heard from you. You have opened our eyes and challenged us in ways and informed us about things in our own hearts and our own lives that we can work on as we strive to obey you and, and glorify you and honor you with our lives. So tonight, as we do the same, as we open the Word of God and we hear from you, may you attend to it and challenge us with the things from your Word and help us to put them into practice all to your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last time we were together, I was told after uh, we had our time in our evening service that after I had finished that due to electronic malfunctions with our recording equipment, the message that was preached was not recorded. And I said, well, that's how the Lord would have it. He obviously didn't want that on tape. So, um, of course, we record them so that we can have them for later times and access to all of us in the future. So I want to try to just summarize in some way what was said last Lord's Day and add to it from the final verses here in chapter 5. You notice that the Apostle Paul sums up the goal uh, of this very practical wisdom that he has given us with these words, beginning in verse 24. He says, now those, um, actually let's begin in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then he puts the exclamation point really on all of that by saying, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. So in essence, this is the goal of the Christian life. To live not fulfilling the desires of self. 
to live not fulfilling the desires of self, to live rather in obedience to the Spirit's leading. And what is that? What is the Spirit's leading? It is whatever God's Word says. The Spirit leads in one way and one way only. It is whatever the Word of God says. We are reminded of the words of Jesus Christ Himself in John chapter 17 as He prays to the Father on the night before His death. The very night before He's going to be crucified for the sins of all whom He would die for, He says this to the Father, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Father, make them holy, set them apart, make them holy not only through the death that I will now accomplish in that, and thereby my righteousness becomes theirs, but make them holy in practice. Make their lives holy, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. And we understand in John chapter 17 that Jesus, at least in the near context, is specifically praying for the apostles who would become after him the extension of the gospel to us who are in the world after them. But he also is praying for every Christian. You say, how do you know that? Well, we know that because he prays also in verse 20 these words, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. Well, that is you and I. Jesus Christ, think about that. Jesus Christ, on the night of his death, is praying for us. Praying that the Father would do what the Father has promised through the means of Jesus Christ and the Spirit to sanctify us in truth. So it's amazing that included in the prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17 are each and every Christian. Each and every Christian is there, that they would be sanctified by the Word of God, which is truth, and it is the Spirit of God that leads us in truth. John chapter 16, Jesus promises, promises that upon His return to the glory of heaven, that He would send the Helper. He identifies the Helper there in John chapter 16 as the Spirit, the one who would come alongside, who would lead us in this truth. And how do we know that the Spirit will lead us in the word of truth? How do we know that? John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. How do we know that? Because He will not speak on His own initiative, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me. Of course, Jesus is talking. He shall glorify me. Therefore, anything the Spirit does is pointed at glorifying, honoring, reflecting Jesus Christ. He will glorify me because he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. So the Holy Spirit is taking from God the Father, the words of God the Father, speaking of Jesus Christ, disclosing the words of Christ so that Christ is glorified. And so the Spirit of truth, therefore, then leads the apostles 
in the truth of God. And now you and I have the word of God given to us through the apostles who were carried along by the Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. They were carried along by the Spirit of truth, leading them in truth as they inscripturated the Word of God so that what we have on our laps, on our phones, right here in front of us is exactly the Word of God, the Word of truth. So when we hear and follow the Word of God, what are we doing? We are following the Spirit. When we obey the Word of God, we are following the Spirit. The Word of God is the Spirit's leading us. The Word of God is the Spirit leading us. So the goal of our Christian lives is to follow the Spirit. It is to obey the Word of God. This is what Paul says here in Galatians 5 and verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, in other words, if we've been made alive in Christ, by the work of the Spirit. The Spirit made us alive together with Christ, right? We are alive in Christ. If we live by the Spirit, then let us also walk by the Spirit. This is the goal. Well, over the last previous weeks, as we have been studying in Galatians, we have been learning how to live out that ideal, how to live out what matters most how to walk by the Spirit. And we've been gaining an understanding, as we've listed them, of these six truths that help us live out the reality of what the Apostle Paul says about each of us in chapter 5 and verse 1. Remember what he said, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. What does Paul mean by that? Well, he, in a nutshell, means simply this. That salvation in Jesus Christ is sufficient to set you free from the wrath of God. That's positional sanctification. You are made holy. You are saved from the wrath of God in Christ. It's sufficient. Salvation in Christ is sufficient to save you from the wrath of God. And it's also sufficient to save you from the rulership of self. You have been set free. You have been set free in Christ. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. That is simply to say that what God has accomplished through Christ on our behalf is an accomplished fact. It is an accomplished fact, and because of that, there are ongoing results that ought to be reflected in our lives as we live here and now. Therefore, Paul says up in verse 13, do not allow your freedom to be used as an opportunity for your flesh. Don't let the flesh have an opportunity to to build a beachhead, to build a, 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 a base of operation at which it can be used so that it'll exercise its fleshly selfish desires simply because you're free in Christ. Don't think that because you have now been freed from self, you can live any way you want to live. So how is it that we can be faithful to that calling? Paul says first, be mindful of your calling. Right? That was the first point that we made. Be mindful of your calling in verse 13, for you were called to freedom. 
Paul reminds us again what he said back in verse 1 of that same chapter. You're called for freedom. Be mindful of that fact. Listen, your freedom in Christ is the foundation for your own life and your life with others. doesn't matter whether it's a Christian relationship or a non-Christian relationship that you're interacting with some non-Christian. It is your freedom in Christ that is the foundation for that relationship. You are freed by Christ. Now live for Christ. So we have to understand that. Freedom in Christ is relational. It is relational. It's relational with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's relational with one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the first point. Remember your calling. Secondly, we have to understand our purpose in being free. Verse 13, he says, but through love serve one another. You're called to freedom. Don't let your freedom gain this. Don't let, don't let your freedom be used as this fountainhead for your flesh, but rather contrasting through love, serve one another. So when we live to serve self, what happens? When we live to serve self, there's a, there's a rift that happens in our relationship with Christ. There's a distance that takes place, if you will, if you can think it like that. When we live to serve self, we have a severed, if you will, relationship with Christ. Not, it's not going well when we're living for self. And we bring damage to that relationship, but we also damage the relationship between one another. If we're not loving God as we're called to love, we're not going to love one another as we're called to love. And so Paul says, through love, serve one another. That's just not a one-directional love. That's a love for God and a love for one another. So through love, serve one another. Through your proactive love for honoring Christ, be self-serving for and toward one another. I should say self-sacrificing. I said self-serving there. You don't want to be self-serving toward one another. You want to be self-sacrificing toward one another. Now that I got that on the tape. This is what Christ-like love is. Christ-like love is a self-sacrificing love. Right? It's a self-giving love. It gives itself for the benefit of others. Sometimes that's going to take the effect where someone doesn't like the way I'm giving myself to them. Because Christ-like love oftentimes comes along and always thinks the best for the other person. And sometimes that means coming along and confronting sin issues. But you have to sacrifice yourself to do that. We're going to see that in action in chapter 6, verse 1. You're not going to do that if you're not loving someone through serving them by denying yourself. You're going to stay away and go, well, I don't want that kind of conflict. But Christ-like love is a self-giving love. So understand our purpose in being freed. And then when we are exercising that sacrificial love in our lives, we are to, number three, we are realizing that we are fulfilling the perfect law of God. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in a statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
the Galatians were all wrapped up with this idea that they had some way of fulfilling the law of God and thereby being accountable to God for their own righteousness. They would be okay with that. They were going to be satisfied with that. They thought they could satisfy God with their own righteousness and trying to fulfill the law, trying to fulfill their being tempted to get circumcised as if somehow that would make them righteous. Paul says, listen, when you sacrifice yourself for others, you're fulfilling the whole law. You're loving. So know that you are free. Know that your purpose is God set you free to exercise a sacrificial love. And that the reason that is that now through Christ, you can fulfill the perfect law that you could never fulfill before. Christ has fulfilled it all in a positional sense, and yet he says, now obey the law. Do what I ask. And therefore, number four, he says, remember that ruin awaits if you don't. Ruin awaits if you don't. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. In other words, there's an inevitable outcome to self-serving. There's an inevitable outcome when I serve myself. That inevitable outcome is destruction. Mutual destruction, personal destruction for me and destruction for others that I deal with in my path. You bite and devour one another, that's the destruction of each other. You're going to consume one another. There will be not only mutual destruction, there will be individual personal destruction to yourself. So we can simply say it in this way. You want to bring trouble into your relationships within the church and outside the church? You want to have trouble in those relationships? Then go about serving yourself. And you'll have trouble. And in the end, you will be consumed by it. You think, yeah, I finally got it. I got my pound of flesh out of that person. They offended me. They came at me or did something like that. Man, I'm going to go after them. I I feel better about it. Guess what? In the end, you're consuming yourself. So remember your calling, he says. You've been freed in order to, to serve. Remember your purpose. That's it. Serving one another in love. Why? Because in that you're fulfilling the law of God. You're doing exactly what God has called you to do and be. But also you have to remember the danger. Self-service destroys. Self-service destroys. But what's the fix? This is number five, the fix. It's very simple. The fix is very simple. Follow the Spirit. How do I do that? Follow the Spirit. Verses 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now there's the reality of the Christian life. You want to honor God? You want to love one another through love? Then follow the Spirit. When you're following the Spirit, it is impossible to follow the flesh. Remember the goal, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit, it is the obligation we have because we are born of the Spirit, we have the Spirit in us, we are to follow the Spirit. So here's the fix. Here's the fix. Have it settled in your convictions. 
Have it settled in your conviction. Don't let it waffle. Have it settled down in your convictions that following the Spirit, doing what God says, regardless of what it seems like out here, regardless of what it it looks like or how crazy other people may say you are, or whatever other obligation is coming against that, Settle in your convictions that following the Spirit is sufficient for overcoming any kind of fleshly desire. Doing what the Word of God says is sufficient to overcome any fleshly desire. That's what Paul's saying. When you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So if we obey what the Word of God tells us, Paul says it's an ironclad guarantee. It's an ironclad guarantee that you will not sin. You will not treat one another in a self-serving way. If you follow God, you will not serve self. And you know, Part of the reason we have that ironclad guarantee goes all the way back to John 17 and Jesus' prayer. God wants to honor the Son just as the Son wants to honor the Father and the Spirit wants to honor the Son as the Spirit wants to honor the Father and God the Father and God the Son want to give honor and glory to the Spirit and so they will do nothing that would contradict that. And so when Jesus says, sanctify them in truth, God's going to sanctify us in truth, and when we follow the truth, we are being sanctified. It's about as basic as you can get, isn't it? And yet, we have a whole lot of difficulty with that, don't we? Why? Why? Well, the reason we have difficulty is because the flesh is so deceptive. The flesh is so deceptive. In fact, God tells us through Jeremiah that there's nothing more deceitful than the heart of man. Nothing. The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9, and he says, who can understand it? The fact of the matter is we don't even understand our own heart. It is so deceptive, so wicked, so sick, the fleshly heart, we don't understand it. So when our heart is approving us, we better be careful not to trust it. This is why God says just prior to Jeremiah 17, 9, He says in verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. It's not that you just don't One, trust in the Lord. You trust the Lord. Your trust is the Lord. That is simply to say that there is a sufficiency in all that God has told us and our convictions lay there. We trust Him and we trust in Him. So we get trapped following the flesh because we don't trust the Lord. How do we know? How do we know that that's happening in us? How can we tell when that's happening with us? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us here, our sixth point that we were talking about, the sixth truth. Here it is. Verses 
19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Paul lists 15 outworkings of the self-serving heart. 15 outworkings that show that we're following self rather than following the Spirit. And we have to be clear here, this isn't the only way that following the self is manifested in life. We know that. We could sit here tonight and pick out of that list and go, well, I'm not doing that, not doing that, not doing that, not doing that, and go away very self-satisfied as if we're not serving self when in fact we may be serving self in all kinds of ways. We know that because Paul ends his list with those few little words that we wish he didn't write, but God had him write. Why? Because God wants us sanctified, and he says, and things like these. So anything that is reflecting in the self-gratification of me, that's the idea. Anything that is, that is reflecting in my life that is the self-gratification of the great you, doesn't have to be a gross sin. doesn't have to be the outworking of some kind of gross sin. It may simply be a subtle underlying heart attitude. Paul says these are evident. Evident is the word phreneros. It's, it's, it's just the things that are apparent. They're clearly apparent. They're manifest. They're clearly known. They're well known, in fact. They're not under disguise. Why are they well known? Because we know them. We know when we're being selfish. We know when our heart's not serving the Lord. We know that. It's plain. It's obvious. So what are they? Paul lists 15 of them. First one, he says, immorality. Immorality, a general term just referring to any kind of sexual sin. We heard about it at the men's conference. I'm not going to go into detail in any of these. We, we certainly heard from Dr. Dorn exactly what the word porneia entails. It's just any kind of sexual activity outside the bounds of which God had created that to be taken place between a husband and wife within the context of which God's Word says. That's porneia. That's immorality. The second, impurity. Just a general sense of uncleanness. It doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean dirty in a physical sense. It can certainly mean that, but it, it's a moral sense. There's this general uncleanness in, their, in the moral sense. God's Word clearly defines what it is to live for Him. Jesus clearly shows in His life exactly what moral cleanness is. Anything that's outside of that or doesn't look like that, it's usually impure. Sensuality, number three. It's just unbridled, unfettered, unhindered lust. That's what it is. Lust for anything. doesn't necessarily mean to be a sexual lust, although that's normally how it's brought out. But it's unbridled lust. And then idolatry is in there. Idolatry. Sometimes we think of that. Most often we think of that, the worship of other gods. Somebody's got a little little icon on a shelf or out in the yard or whatever. But the reality is that serving self is the making of oneself the object of worship. 
So to serve self is idolatry. So whether it's immorality and impurity and sensuality, those are serving self, that's idolatry. Whether it's sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, crowding, those are idolatry. This is almost an umbrella term for fit all of those things or any way in which we serve self. Idolatry. Then he says sorcery, sorcery. I told us last time it's the word where we get our word pharmacy. It's pharmakia. It's, it's, it's Paul describing body and mind altering activities, whatever that entails. Usually was certainly part of the practice of sorcery, witchcraft and those kind of things. Often in our modern day, it's the word for mind altering things or drugs. Any kind of drugs, even drugs that help us are all mind-altering drugs. That's pharmacy, pharmakia. Sixth, enmities. That's just hatred. Hatred in general. Just, a, just an angst, a hatred for God, a hatred for others. However it's, however it's manifest. Then he says strife. Strife, the idea of contention and debate. This was used really in political realms where they debate one another. There's, there's this political strife that goes on. We certainly see that in our country. Continually argumentative. It's an unwillingness to have any sense where you yield anything. Then he says jealousy. Jealousy is zeal. Certainly there's a good kind of zeal. right? Jesus had zeal for his father's house. But jealousy this way is the wrong kind of zeal. It's a selfish zeal. It's a zeal for all that's wrong. And then ninth, he says outbursts of anger. Outbursts of anger. The word is thumos. Thumos in the original language just means a, a quick flash burst of anger, like a, like a volcano exploding. It's explosive anger. It's unprovoked anger. It's just something didn't go your way, so you explode what he's talking about. The list goes on. He says to disputes, disputes, disputes. That's just rivalries between factions. That's like gang fighting. It's just disputes. May not go to that distance. May not even look like that. It might just be simply rivalries between two people in the home. Which brings about the 11th, which is dissensions dissensions, and then 12, factions, which some of your versions may say divisions. So you got fighting that goes on, which brings camps, and then those camps bring factions, divisions between them. And then number 13, envying, envying, which is just unhappiness in the heart that someone else got what you want, or someone else succeeded where you want to succeed, or someone else got praised and you want to be praised, or, or even to the fact that you find pleasure when someone else isn't getting what they deserve. The misfortune of others. That's also envy. And then the final two, drunkenness and carousing. Of course, we know what drunkenness is. It's the mind-altering reality of being unsober. That's why Paul uses that word, or why the translators use the word sober-minded when they talk about having the mind of Christ. We need to be sober-minded. We need to have clear thinking. Drunkenness certainly doesn't give you that. And then carousing is just this partying kind of attitude, this desire to have revelry and parties all the time. So it's quite a list. 
sexual sin, social sin, sins in the church, sins outside the church. And of course, the caveat and things like these, Paul says, anything in a similar manner, anything with that kind of heart and attitude, these are all things that are evident. These are fleshly activities. These are activities that aren't following the Spirit. These are activities that are following the self. There's a reason that the flesh produces that kind of behavior. Why? Because the flesh left to itself, the flesh that isn't denied, the flesh that isn't pushed out, the flesh, as Romans 6 says, isn't mortified, as you are called as a Christian to mortify the deeds of the flesh. The flesh that isn't mortified does what comes naturally to the flesh. You might even say it this way. I heard it said in the past, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. Right? That's who you are. What's down comes up. Here's how Jesus said it, Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Why? Because the tree is known by its fruit. So the old self produces sinful fruit because it's a bad tree. It has a bad root. It's dead, in fact, Ephesians 2 says. The Spirit, however, is a good tree. The Spirit, if we want to continue with that metaphor, the Spirit is the good, and therefore it produces good fruit. That's what Paul gives us in verse 22 to 23, where I want to spend the rest of our time. Verse 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit. You see the contrast here with the deeds of the flesh. This is evident. This is how you can tell if you're being fleshly, But here's how you can tell if you're walking by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice that Paul is returning to the theme that he stated back in verse 13. But through love, serve one another. Paul is returning to that scene. Through love, through love, which is the greatest, right? Even the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, the faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Right? The exercise, the outworking of it. You can say, I have faith all you want, but without works, it's dead faith, James said. So love being the greatest in that it flows through the fruit. It flows through all of these. Love, being the greatest, flows through all of the fruit of the Spirit. It's simply to say that love is not separate. It is not one out here, and I'm loving here, and then, okay, here I'm joy, and here I'm peace, and here I'm pain. No, love flows through all of that. It flows through all of the others. There's no true joy. There's no true peace. There's no true patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control unless it is loving joy and loving patience and loving peace and loving kindness and loving goodness, etc., etc. In other words, if it isn't by means of love, if it isn't exercised as a love serving one another, then it isn't of the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit's fruit of love 
is the kind of selfless sacrificial affection that enables us to serve one another in that love. The Spirit's love is a self-sacrificing, self-giving love that enables us to serve one another with that kind of love. Romans 5.5 says it this way, we love God with the same kind of love. Why? Because He loves us. Right? Through the death of His Son, and then He pours His love, here's how it says it, quote, in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God loves us. God dies for us. Romans 5.5, 5. He loved us in such a way, He loved the ungodly in such a way, that He pours out His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So it's the love of God by means of the Spirit that helps us walk in this love that we're called to love. So the first indicator of walking by the Spirit is love. Love, agape, self-sacrifice. Then he says the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy. Sometimes we think of joy... When we think of it, we think of happiness. Oh, we're really happy. We're laughing. It's full of joy. Isn't this wonderful? In other words, a happiness based on what's going on, circumstance, things happening in my life, things not happening. If circumstances are good, then I'm happy. If things aren't good, I'm not happy. But the fruit of joy is not so much happiness as it is contentment. Contentment. In other words, spirit-led joy has to do with something outside of circumstance. Because it's rooted in the understanding of our eternal destiny in Christ. Notice what Matthew 13 says. Just go back there for a moment. Matthew 13, very familiar passage to us as the parables of Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives the parable about the seeds, right? There's this sower that goes out, he sows the seed on the ground, some of it lands on rocky soil. Some of it lands on these places where it springs up really quickly. Some of it lands on good soil. So Jesus says, Hear this parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes, snatches it away. Verse 19. What has been sown in his heart, this is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. There's this circumstantial joy that goes on. He he hears the word of God. Oh, it's very exciting. There's this outward thing, but he has no root in himself. And it's only temporary, verse 21. And when the circumstances change, when affliction and persecution arise because of the word, what happens? No more joy. One in whom the seed was sown among the thorns, This is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The one whom the seed was sown in the good soil, right? God had tilled the heart, 
God had prepared the soil. This is the man who hears the word. He understands it. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter what's going on. He hears it. He bears fruit. He brings forth some 100, some 60, some 30. You see, this is the reality of the joy. It's the understanding that we are in Christ, that because we're in Christ, it really doesn't matter what takes place. I can love someone else. I can exercise this self-sacrificing love because I understand that my circumstances are not temporal. My understanding of where I live in the love of Christ and because of who Christ is transcends the temporal circumstances of my life. And therefore, when I need to, I'll go to my brother in Christ and I'll deal with issues where there's sin that's happening. Even if that means I'm going to have some kind of rift in a relationship that I don't want, I still need to respond in love and act in love. When when we're walking through life, if there isn't that kind of joy in us, then we have to check ourselves to see if we're actually following the Spirit or following self-service. We walk in by the Spirit in that moment? Is that why? And with joy comes the third. Peace, he says. Peace. Peace. One commentator put it this way. Quote, if joy is the exhilaration of the heart that comes from knowing that you're right with God eternally, right? That exhilarated joy that knows no matter what's going on circumstantially, I'm right with God. If joy is that, then peace is the tranquility of mind that flows from that saving relationship, unquote. He's right. If joy is this exhilaration because I know I'm in Christ, then peace is the tranquility of mind that flows out of that, no matter what the circumstance is. Paul said it in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. There's this tranquility of mind knowing that everything's settled with God. So since we have peace with God, and we know that, we know it's secure for all eternity, we can serve others through that peace regardless of the circumstance. So how do we know if we're walking in the Spirit? Is love reflected in your life? Joy, peace. Number four, patience. Patience. Ah, really? We had to talk about that? Patience. The the ability, the willingness, and even the desire to suffer long or to be long under wrath, if you will, or under, under hatred. Well, when I have peace, I can easily exercise patience no matter what's taking place. Because patience means long-suffering in the face of hardship. Long-suffering in the face of hardship. In other words, loving endurance. That's the idea. Loving endurance. Not that I love endurance in the sense of a, a, a mental capacity, but loving the exercise of love over the long haul. 
loving endurance. Loving endurance. So we love, we have joy, peace, we have this long-suffering, and then he says, kindness. 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 If patience is the opposite of what Paul said is the outwork of the flesh, this outburst of anger, in other words, a patient person is a very small, fused person, a very low, slow, long-fused person willing to suffer irritation, willing to suffer insult, willing to suffer aggravation, willing to suffer petty grievances, willing to suffer idiosyncrasies of others who aren't like them without complaining. If that's patience, then what follows that is kindness. Kindness. Why? Because it's not what we might think. Not what we might think. Normally we think of kindness as some random act, right? Some random act of nicety that we consider some other person before ourselves. It's, it's the old adage we hear today, pay it forward, right? You go to the gas station, there's a car there or where there's a guy there and you pay, the, pay it and say, hey, I want this guy. Or you go through a toll booth and say, hey, I want to pay the guy behind me. They get up there and go, hey, the guy already paid for you. What? It's this little act of kindness and it's true there's a sense of kindness in that thoughtfulness in that but what paul is talking about here is not something random what paul is talking about here is a constant readiness to help that's kindness a constant readiness you're ready all the time to help in other words it's an active looking it's a looking out at, at the sea of your brothers and sisters, those in Christ and even humanity, and you're looking for someone to serve. You're looking for some way in order to engage in loving service. For the Christian in us in the church, this shouldn't be hard for us to exercise. You should just be looking for places to serve and minister in the church. People say to me, what is my spiritual gift? I didn't know. I don't know where I should serve. I said, look. Surely there's someone you can serve. Surely there's some, some way in which you can engage yourself in the service of others. When you do that, you're walking by the Spirit. You're actually exercising the fruit of kindness. It's closely related to the next on the list. Goodness. Goodness. Our world thinks of goodness as being the absence of some moral decline, right? If somebody's not morally debauched, they're a good person. That's how the world defines things. Hey, I'm not going to hell. I'm a good person. And their idea is I'm not as morally declined as somebody else. Well, that's interesting only as much as the world continues to accept a lower and lower standard of what is acceptable. So as the moral compass declines lower and lower and lower, the definition of goodness in the eyes of the world declines lower and lower and lower. That's not how the Bible defines goodness. Praise God. Right? Goodness in the Bible is actually defined by a willingness to be generous. A willingness to be generous. Goodness Goodness in man is not 
a mere passive quality, in other words, a quality by which we have passively because we're not doing something of moral uh, debauchery, and therefore we're not good. It's not passive in quality. It's a deliberate preference of right over wrong. It's a preference to do what is right as opposed to what is wrong. It is a a persistent, if you will, a persistent resistance of all kinds of moral decline. And that moral decline for the Christian is defined by the Scriptures. What is that? Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, the evident deeds of the flesh. Here's how Paul says it. Paul said this to be an attitude and an action of the Christian. Notice toward the end of his letter, chapter 6, verse 10, he says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That doing good, that's goodness. While we have opportunity, Opportunity abounds everywhere to do good to one another, to show yourself in generousness to one another, willing to give yourself up generously to someone else. That's everywhere. So it's the reflecting then of this disposition of God. God is generous to us. We have this disposition of, we have a responsibility of reflecting that disposition of goodness to others. God is good to the to the just and the unjust, it says in Acts. He lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. And so we ought to let our goodness rain on the just and the unjust. And if we're led by the, by the Spirit, that fruit will be in our life. And he says faithfulness. Faithfulness, one of my favorite words in the entire Scriptures. Faithfulness, this is really just the word faith. Uh, it's used here, translated faithfulness here. It's just pistis. It's the word faith. But faith and faithfulness carry the same idea. It's the idea of reliability. Reliability, not just in word, but reliability in action. We might even define it as believability. When you think about the faithfulness of God, right? The Scriptures say God is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. You read that in the Psalms over and over and over again. When we say God is faithful, we conclude that God is believable. He's reliable. What God says, He does. And so that is to be the Spirit-led Christian. We are those who are faithful. We're reliable We're reliable in what we say. We are reliable in what we do. We are loyal. We are dependable. We are just like our Savior. That's the idea. We're faithful. Faithful people. In fact, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 3, because this is an interesting principle in light of the fact what the Apostle Paul says about elders and deacons says it's a trustworthy statement, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, if a man aspires to the office of an overseer to find work he desires to do. And then he gives this long list of qualities, outworkings, character-defining 
realities about a man's life. Right? He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Notice the word dignity there is repeated down in verse 8. Deacons likewise, that likewise connects it with what he said to elders. So it isn't as if the qualities of elders are something for elders only. These are qualities for deacons also. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity. Not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith, which is with a clear conscience. Let them be tested. And notice verse 11, women must likewise be what? Dignified. There's the idea again. So it isn't that men are just this and and deacons are this and elders and deacons are these things. No, women are to be like that too. Dignified. Dignified is this outworking in their life. They're not malicious gossips. They're temperate. They're faithful in all things. There's that word faithful. Let them, let the deacons be husbands of one wife, good managers of children, their own households. Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. In other words, there's this reality that within the life there is a dignity that is shown that encompasses all of life. That's the idea. Faithful. Back in... Verse 22, this is what Paul's saying in Galatians. You need to be faithful. You need to be dignified. Dignified in your life. It's not just for leadership. It's not just for those who are called into some Christian ministry as a vocation. This is for all of us. The likewise in that passage encompasses the whole reality. We're all to be dignified. Faithfulness is a dignified way of acting. Reliable. Believable. Then, gentle. Gentleness. Verse 23. Better translated, meekness. Meekness. We know what meekness is. Humility in action, isn't it? Meekness is humility in action. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 Paul said this, well, I'll read from 14 since it makes the sentence, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter says, listen, you want to tell somebody about the reality of why you have hope in your life regardless of the circumstance, you do it in meekness. Meekness and reverence. Humility and fear of God. Out of reverence for God and a humility before God, you can say those things, you can share those things. Some have said that meekness is power under control. Power under control. So the emphasis on the last statement, power under control, that's not, that's not to say that the emphasis is on the power. No, it's, it's the under control reality. That's the idea. 
Meekness is, is a condition inwardly before it is seen outwardly. Humility is an inward reality before it's ever something expressed outwardly. You're not going to be gentle outwardly if you're not gentle in your own heart. Well, meekness or gentleness outwardly with others is because you understand your right place before God. You understand who you are before God. This is exactly why the Apostle Paul says in 6.1, when you go to restore such a one, you do it in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Gentleness. Humility. You understand. You understand your position before God. You understand your place. You're not going there to say, hey, listen, brother, you're not as good as me. You need to buck up in your sinfulness because you need to get up. It's the spiritual place where we're at. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you go with gentleness. You go with meekness. Notice, looking to yourself. And then Paul says, lastly, self-control. Self-control, verse 23. Self-control. What's self-control? The idea of temperance. Temperance. Or or self-imposed moderation. Self-imposed moderation. In other words, you don't let your heart control you, your flesh control you, you control it. Right? Especially with those things that feed self-gratification. If we're going to curb, if you and I as Christians are going to curb the desire to use our freedom in Christ as a license for the flesh, if we're going to curb that in any kind of way and not carry out the deeds of the flesh, if we're going to live by the Spirit, then we have to follow the Spirit who is completely under control. Right? When we follow the Word of God, we know it's not an out-of-control thing that we're doing. It is absolutely under control. A person who is following the Spirit has the restraint of self-discipline. Why? Because they're not trying to do it on their own. They're not trying to say, hey, I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to do it. No, they're following the Spirit. The Spirit is in in absolute control and you follow the Spirit, you have restraint and self-discipline not to be ruled by your fleshly passions. You'll resist any temptation. Notice what Paul says. Against such things there is no law. The end of verse 23. Against such things there is no law. That means there is no curse of God against those. Against that stuff. You're living by the Spirit. Guess what? You're not under the curse. You're not under the curse of God. Those who reflect that in their life can be sure you are not under the curse. You're not under the law. Paul's saying against these things, the fruit of the Spirit. That that means this isn't the exhaustive list of the fruit of the Spirit. There are other ways and other outworkings of the Spirit in our life as we follow the, the Word of God, whereby love is flowing through and coming out of us visibly in other ways. All of these are pertinent. All of these are visible examples of following the Spirit. And all of them belong together. 
All of them belong together. In other words, this is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. You follow the Spirit, these will be in your life. So in the end, Paul is saying, as a Christian, you don't have to live like a legalist. And you surely aren't free to live out of license. You don't have to leave like a legalist trying to accomplish all this on your own. Trying to please God and find your own righteousness. No, God has freed you from that in Christ. You are free in Christ from serving self. So follow the Spirit and you'll fulfill the perfect law of God. You'll be living out what matters most. So, kill the deeds, kill the deeds, kill the desires of the flesh. How? Starve them to death by following the Spirit. Starve them to death by following the Spirit. Don't be boastful. Seems ironic that he would even have to say this after he says, in gentleness, that's meekness, don't be boastful, don't be prideful. Start walking by the Spirit. Don't, don't pride, right? There's deceptiveness in the heart. The heart can start to puff you up if you're not careful. Don't be boastful and challenge one another. Being arrogant with one another. Envying one another. Don't go around envying saying, man, I wish I was like you. Don't do that. Don't do any of that. No, follow the Spirit and you will be living out what matters most. That's why he says in verse 25, if you live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, then walk by the Spirit. So what do we do when sin happens? What do we do when sin happens? Chapter 6, we'll get to that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your servant, Paul. Thank You for the Spirit. Thank You for for answering the prayer of Your Son and for sanctifying us in truth. Thank You for setting us apart in permanent sanctification in Christ and giving us the Spirit whom we can follow and are equipped to follow by His power so that we might be sanctified in practice. Thank You for loving us in that way. Help us to exercise these things so that we aren't carrying out the deeds of the flesh, but that the Spirit of God is reflected in our lives through how we walk. And all of that points back to You, our great, wonderful Savior in whom we trust. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.